All right. Tonight we are moving forward in the Minor Prophets. And um, if you want a handout, I think they're passing those out. In the meantime, um, be looking up there at the screen and somebody tell me um, what that is on the screen. What is that? A cassette tape. Okay. Dinosaurs you are. No, I'm just kidding. Um, what, what, what do you know about that besides the fact that it's pretty old? What do you know about a cassette tape? After a tracks Chuck says, okay, I don't know what an a track is, but I've heard of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so what else do we know about cassette tapes? What else? You got to use a pencil, uh, Ms. Doris says, and you could wind it pretty quick with your finger if you want to do that. Um, what else? What else do we know? What was that? There are two sides, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. So there's two sides on the cassette tape. There's a side A. And then there's a side B to every cassette tape. For the most part, you can store more information. It's flip one on each side. Tonight, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of Nahum. And tonight we are going to study what I consider to be side B among the prophets. Side A for the lesson tonight would be the book of Jonah. You remember Jonah? Who was Jonah sent to preach to in the Old Testament? Starts with Nineveh, ends with Va. Nineveh, that's right. And so Jonah sent to preach to Nineveh. How does that work out? Does Jonah want to go? No. But how does it turn out for the people of Nineveh? What was that? Good. Yes. Why didn't Jonah want to go? Does anybody know that? Why didn't Jonah want to go? He wanted them to be destroyed. But for what reason, Robert? Why, why did Jonah want them to be destroyed? Because they were what kind of people? They were wicked and evil people. And Jonah wanted them to be destroyed. And he said, I don't want to go because if I go, God, I know you'll be merciful. And that's exactly what happens. God gives them another chance. They're not destroyed. That's side A. When you get to side B, though, of this cassette tape or this prophecy toward Nineveh, what you'll find is Nahum preaches to the same group of people. His message is also to the people of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. But his message is completely different. Now, side A is Jonah going and giving them an opportunity to repent. You remember his sermon, Jonah three and verse four. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Eight words in his sermon. The whole city repented. Right. That's their first opportunity. The book of Nahum is three chapters, 47 verses. You won't find those words of hope or that opportunity to repent or God giving them a second chance. They've blown that. And so this is this side B. And, and the reason why we need to start this way is because I think the book of Nahum may be the darkest book among the minor prophets, maybe the darkest book in the Bible. And if you just picked up your Bible and flipped open randomly to the book of Nahum, you might be shocked and say, why is God dealing so roughly with these people? Why isn't there any hope? Why isn't there any mercy? Why is it just judgment, doom, gloom and some of the heinous things we're going to read about tonight? And it's because they had an opportunity at first. There was a side A and they bypassed that. And as a result, here we are with the judgment that is that's theirs. All right. So let's go ahead and we'll stick with the same format we've gone through before. You have the handout there and um, we'll work our way through the book of Nahum tonight and make application at the end. OK, let's start with the intro and background to the book. Who wrote the book of Nahum? Nahum. That's right. I mean, that's your opportunity to get one easy one on the board. OK. Yeah. So there's a man by the name of Nahum. His name means um, comfort or compassion. It sounds like and it's really close to other Hebrew words like Naham that means something like consolation or something along those lines. There's another man with this name in Jesus's genealogy and Luke chapter three and verse twenty five. Not sure if it's the same person. 
all we know about him as an individual is what you have in verse one. So look at Nahum one in verse one, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkish. And so that's all we know about him as an individual. His name means comfort or compassion. Interestingly enough, his message, though filled with gloom, doom, punishment and judgment, would be compassion and comfort for God's people. He's going to speak about the condemnation that's coming on Assyria and on the Ninevites. But for the people of Judah, it would be a message of compassion for them. And so it was good news. So that's who wrote the book. Number two, when did he write the book? This is important. So we believe that the events from Jonah happened about in the 800s. So from 800 to about 740 is our timeline for the book of Jonah. And what did Jonah go and preach? A message of what to the people of Nineveh? Rick? Repentance, yes, and judgment. That's right. So from 800 to maybe 740-ish. Jonah, I mean, Nahum's book is somewhere in the 625 to 612 range. Somebody says, how do you come up with that date? Well, the people of Assyria destroyed a city in ancient Egypt called the city of Thebes in 663 B.C. And that's mentioned in Nahum 3, 8 through 13. So that had already taken place. And so there's anywhere from 663 to 612. That's when Nineveh eventually falls. So somewhere in that range. And that's how we get from about 625 to 612. Why that matters and the date here matters probably more than in some of the other minor prophets is because it just shows you the mercy and compassion and patience of God. If these people heard Jonas preaching in the 700s, here we are with Nahum in the 600s, roughly 100 years of time God had given them between when they repented initially and when Nahum's message of doom and gloom comes along. Greg talked about patience tonight. Maybe you think about God and you say God's patient. That's true. 100 years. That's a long time. To give people to get their act together, to relent from total punishment and destruction. And that's what you have in the book of Nahum. So this happens in about 625, anywhere between 625 and 612 when Assyria finally collapses. What's going on in Judah at this time? Josiah is the king. You read about his reign in 2 Kings 22. Josiah, a good king or a bad king? Good king. He's actually called the good king Josiah. And he was trying to call God's people back to him and get them to repent. He doesn't feature in the book of Nahum, but it's just interesting. Is God saying, hey, Assyria is going to be punished. You've got Josiah on the other side trying to hopefully get God's people on the right track and do the right sorts of things. All right. Next. Who's the audience? I've already told you. Who's he preaching to? Nineveh. However, it's kind of strange to think about Nineveh getting this mail and reading the book of Nahum. They probably didn't. This is a message about Nineveh, but it's to the people of God. So he's preaching to the people of God in the southern kingdom, Judah, about the capital city of Nineveh. Notice how they're mentioned. I'm in verse one, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum. So they're mentioned there. And then you also have them um, mentioned as the bloody city. In chapter three and verse one, he calls them the bloody city that calls blood on others is coming back on them. And then in chapter two and verse eight, it says Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt. They cry, but none turns back. So it's to the people of Nineveh about their sins. Now, here's what makes this book interesting. There's no mention of any sin among God's people. Typically, you have the prophets like even Amos. Amos talks about the nations and the punishment that's coming to them. 
But then he talks about the sins in Israel and Judah and the problems they're having. Nahum doesn't deal with that at all. He just focuses primarily on the people of Nineveh, the people of Assyria, and what God's going to do through them. Furthermore, there's no mention of like Zion or really Jerusalem or the elect part of Israel, the nation, the covenant or any of that. It's just a message solely focused on what God's going to do to Nineveh and what his plans are for them. A brief outline of the book. There it is. And so this is going to be the outline that we're going to take as we go through the book. It starts with an introduction of the prophet who wrote it. That is Nahum. Then we're going to look at praising God's majesty in chapter one from verse two down through chapter eight. Nahum just tells us who God is. He's the one that's going to be responsible for the destruction of Nineveh. And that's going to be important that they don't think it's just the Babylonians when they show up with the Medes to destroy them. It's actually God. There's an oracle against Nineveh, which is just basically another word for oracle. It's a message about Nineveh and what's coming on them. And then the doom of Nineveh, chapter two, verse one down through chapter three and verse 19. We could have just crossed all that out and just said just doom. That's the whole book. It's punishment for them. It's doom. It's going to be a really bad time for them because of the things that they have done. Um, Question. Any idea why God would be so furious with a nation like this? Why would God be so upset with these people? And while you're thinking about that, why would he be so upset with them and choose to deal with them in this way, especially since they're not in a covenant relationship with him? So you can understand Israel. God drug them out of Egypt, saved them, delivered them, special land, special law, special people, bring the Messiah in. They don't live right. Punishment. Babylonian captivity. Assyria. Got you. But why be so furious? You're going to read some things if you've never read Nineveh. I mean, Nahum before that might shock you about the things God is saying in this book that he's going to do to these people because of their wickedness. But my question is, why would he say this about this group of people? They're not in covenant relationship. Why is he so upset with them? And why is his wrath burning so hot? Any ideas? The. Okay, Miss Leanne says the capture and abuse of his people. Yeah, we'll talk more about that. Now, Israel was never. Well, Judah was never under Assyrian captivity, but there is persecution and frustration. Which is why Jonah didn't want to go. I'm going to pull up some quotes here in a minute from ancient history about the kinds of people that they were. And it might give you a little sympathy toward Jonah and why he didn't want to go. And the capture and abuse toward his people. Vivian? He turned. He gave him mercy. We'll just call it side A, right? They had side A of the tape. He gave him mercy and they didn't they didn't care about it. Um, Who else? Andy and then Dwight. Yeah, I think that's important. So he's not under a covenant with them, but God is the God of all the nations. Psalm 47 and verse eight says every nation is under his submission, even in the Old Testament, by the way. In the Old Testament, Israel is his special covenant people that he's going to bring the Messiah through. But every nation always has and always will answer to God. It's not the case under the old covenant. Gentiles do what you want. We'll get you under the new covenant. Even under that old covenant, when they got out of line, God was upset with it and he wanted to deal with them. Isaiah chapter 10 and verse five, though, the Bible says God used Assyria as the rod of his anger. So when his people were misbehaving, he used the Assyrians, the people of Nineveh, to discipline them. But God's problem with them was they hit too hard. They went too far. He said, hey, I used you to punish, but you did a little bit too much. You went further than I ever intended. And I'm going to deal with you because of that. That's Isaiah chapter 14, about verse 24 down through 27, where he says part of my punishment is. You've gone. You've extended yourself too far where God did use them to punish. If you exerted too much force, Babylon gets the same treatment said about them. 
God says, now enough is enough. I'm going to deal with you, Dwight. And then we'll look at a few of these passages or quotes. Yeah. So Dwight says they rebelled and they did foolish things. That second Kings 17, where they just mistreat God's people. And as a result, punishments coming. There are three primary sins that Nineveh is guilty of. One is injustice. This isn't on your sheet, I don't believe. Injustice, Nahum 3, 12 through 16. Violence, Nahum 3 and verse 1. And then idolatry, Nahum 1, 14 and chapter 3, 4 through 6. Injustice, violence, idolatry. By the way, you study the Old Testament, those three sins rise to the surface over and over again and upset God. Injustice, what is that? The mistreatment of other people. Violence, just murder and wickedness for no reason. Micah 2 and verse 1 says some people plot evil on their beds. They're just thinking about doing something wicked when they get up. And then idolatry. And that's what Nahum's punished for. All right, let me just show you. These aren't in the Bible. These are quotes. You can look these up yourself. Ancient documents we have about the people of Assyria. The reason why I'm doing this is because modern people tend to have this temptation when we read the Bible and we read about God's judgment. Sometimes, maybe this isn't you but to feel sympathy for the bad guy. And I'm encouraging you tonight not to do that. When you read about the heinous punishment that is a serious, you should have the same response God does, that it's exactly what they deserve for their behavior. Sometimes we read about it and we think, oh, that's kind of rough. I mean, did they really deserve it? And hopefully some of these things about the way they treated other people will awaken us to the kind of people they were. So this is a quote from King Sennacherib, and that's when he reigned. And this is what he says on this um, this prism that was found in 1830 in Baghdad. It says, as for Hezekiah, I shut him up like a bird in a cage in his royal city of Jerusalem. I then constructed a series of fortresses around him and I did not allow anyone to come out of the city gates. So this is about when he approached Israel and Judah, Isaiah 37 and 38 and second Kings 19. And he's boasting about he had Isaiah or Hezekiah shut up in a cage, didn't touch Judah, but had him on the rope, so to speak. Here's another one. This is from another one of their kings who reigned after Sennacherib. And this is what he says about his reign. I'm powerful. I'm powerful. I'm a hero. I'm gigantic. I am colossal. I am honored. I am magnified. And I am I am without equal among all kings. And so this is his boast about his sovereign rule and reign. And this is a victory steal, which is just the document that lists his battles and things. And it was found in 1888 at a gate near southern southern Turkey. This is one of the kings from Assyria. And he would have reigned right before the dynasty really begins to take off with them in some major ways. And here's the last one. And this is from a guy that reigned in the 800s. And it says, I captured many troops alive. Dwight was referring to this a moment ago, I think. I cut off some of their arms and hands. I cut cut off others of their noses and extremities. I gouged out the eyes of many troops and I made one pile of the living and one of the heads. I hung their heads on trees around the city. And the quote goes on with their blood. I dyed the mountain red like wool and the rest of them, the ravines and torrents of the mountain swallowed. I carried off captives possessions from them. I cut off the heads of their fingers and built a tower before their city. I burned their adolescent boys and girls. Now, I didn't want to spoil your dinner tonight. I just wanted you to know the Assyrians were bad people, wicked people. And God's anger is poured out on them as a result of who they were and how they behaved. All right. So let's go ahead and look at the sections that cover the book. All right. The introduction to the prophet. Look at Nahum chapter one and notice verse one. 
an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. So the first verse tells us that it's an oracle about Nineveh pronouncing judgment on them. Um, We talked about why God presents this message to these people, even though they're not in covenant with him. As Andy mentioned, God's the God of all the nations. Question, is that still true? Does God care about the behavior of nations today like he did then and hold them accountable? Or would you say this is somehow changed under the new covenant and God doesn't care? I'm seeing people shake their heads like this. And I think that's right. Does God still care about how nations and people groups behave? He does. How do you know that? What's the proof of that, even in the New Testament? The 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 Great Commission. Okay, yeah, go into all the nations and preach the gospel, disciple people from everywhere. But what is our proof that God cares about even the wickedness of nations if people don't live right? How do you know for a fact that God is still concerned about entire groups of people and how they live? The book of Revelation. Look at the Romans and what they're going to be facing. What about Matthew 24? The Jewish people. Reject Jesus. And in AD 70, he says, Titus and the Romans are going to destroy what you have there. So this is an oracle concerning Nineveh. Second, notice what it's called. It's called the vision of the prophet Nahum. What does that tell you? A vision. What does that mean? God came to him probably at night. Okay. Some of the prophets open their books this way. Isaiah's is called a vision. Isaiah one and verse one. The first verse in Obadiah is called a vision. Um, It's going to be predictive. The things Nahum's talking about haven't happened yet when he's writing, but they're on the way to happening. And the people that are going to read this, they need to know that. But also he talks in vivid imagery throughout his book. He'll say things about people stumbling over dead bodies, chariots racing in the streets, people darting back and forth like lightning. Nineveh will be like a pool with water running away, fire devouring people. He's using this terminology as a literary device to say these are the things that are taking place. Similar in some ways to John and Revelation, but it's God's way of communicating with him about the things that are going to take place. And then here's the last one. This message was delivered by a prophet. Why do you think God recorded this message about Nineveh, a foreign nation, in his book? So, okay, God can judge the nations. That's great. God's going to punish Assyria for what they've done. We see what kind of people they were. That makes sense. Why record it in the Old Testament for Israel, though? Because as we talked about before, Assyria is probably not going to be studying the Old Testament. So why would God send his prophet to preach this message? And why is it recorded in our Bibles if it's about Assyria? First, what would Jewish people have gained from it? And why do you think God preserved it for us? Mm hmm. Hold on, Dwight. We got Gary. I think that's probably one of the main reasons Gary is talking about that. If I'm Israel and I'm reading this, they might be cheering this on. Yes, get them. That's what they deserve. But it's also corrective for them to say, hey, by the way, if you don't live right, what's coming for you? The same thing. Dwight. Yeah. So it would have gave them courage to say, hey, this nation's going to fall. Don't be ashamed of them. Dennis. Yeah. They needed to know that they could trust God's word. Right. That God would do what he said. Yeah. Yeah. God won't let the guilty go unpunished forever. Here's something else to think about. Israel's going to see this on the Palestinian news. Let's just say. Right. Hey, Assyria has fallen. They've crumbled. Who destroyed them? The military answer to that is three groups of people teamed up, the Scythians, the Medes and the Babylonians. The divine answer is who destroyed the Assyrians? God. Daniel 221. God says, I set up kings. I bring them down. I put people in place for as long as I want them. And then I remove them. Israel needed to know when this happened. It was God. 
and he's the one that's totally in charge. And um, God shares his secrets with the prophets, Amos 3 and verse 7, and those prophets share those secrets with the people. So that's how the book begins. As far as? I believe so. I don't believe anybody's in power that God hadn't willed so. I don't think he votes for anybody, if that's what you mean. But um, <laughs> but um, but nobody's in power that God didn't will it. And that should give his people comfort and confidence. We do our part. We pray. We exercise our right. But we trust in the sovereignty of Yahweh that he's in control. And when he gets ready to remove him, he will. That's why we need to study the prophets. I think that's exactly right, that God sets up who he wills. That doesn't mean he approves of every leader, but he approves of government. Romans 13, 1 through 7, and because of that, whoever's there, God can get good done with them, and eventually their own wickedness will be repaid to them for the things they've done wrong and won't repent of. But yes, I think that's right. All right, any, anything else? All right, next section is the praising of God's majesty. I won't read all of these sections, but I will read this one. Let's read Nahum 1, verses 2 down through 8. The Lord is jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Karma wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation and who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. All right. The Bible talks about God using different types of imagery and metaphors. For example, God is our father, right? And the Bible says we cry out, Abba, Abba, Father, Galatians 4, 6 and 7. Uh, Psalm 23, verse 1. You know this one. The Lord is my what? Shepherd. Can you think of any others like the Bible says God is like this, a picture of who God is, another representation. Father, shepherd, any other word pictures come to mind about God that you think of? God is like what or God is what does the Bible say? The rock. God's a rock sometimes. Yep. Of my salvation. God's a shield about me. Yeah, that's true. What else? A mother. Yeah. Mother hen. OK. What else? Here's one. And I think it's the image that Nahum's using in chapter one. And that is that God is a warrior king. And the Bible often uses this imagery when you're reading through the Psalms and you hear about clouds under his feet or something like that. It's the imagery of God going to battle on behalf of his people. You remember what Moses told Israel in Exodus 14, 13. Stand still this day and see the salvation of God. These Egyptians, which you see, you'll never see them again. God is often seen as not just being a part of the battle, but is leading the charge for his people against the adversary and against the enemy. And when you look at Nahum 1 and verse 2, notice what it says. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. God, avenging and wrathful. He takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps the wrath for his enemies. And so God is a warrior king that comes in judgment on people that rebel against him. He does punish. But notice chapter one and verse three. What does it say about God and his anger? Why mention that here? God is slow to anger. Why mention that? Patience. Yes. But what else? Hey, punishment's coming. And what you're going to read about God He didn't get to this decision overnight. It's been 100 plus years. God's been giving them a chance. 
Yeah. Yeah. God would rather pardon people than punish them. But if you force his hand, punishment's coming. Where did Nahum get this, this image of God in Nahum 1 and verse 3? Slow to anger, great in power, won't clear the guilty. Where did he get that from? Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Remember, we talked about how often people go back to this passage. It's the most often quoted passage in the Old Testament from the Old Testament. And the prophets often go to it. It's where God describes himself to Moses and he says, here is who I am and how I am. And that's what they say about God. And so we see in verses four through six, everything quakes at God's presence. And then Nahum one and verse seven, which is probably the most famous verse in the book. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. Um, This verse is probably for Israel, right? For Judah. God's going to destroy Assyria. But what's going to happen to his people? What's going to happen to God's people when the Assyrians get destroyed? They'll be protected. Nothing's going to happen to them. They'll be safe. God's not going to destroy the righteous with the wicked. He'll keep his people safe. But what about his enemies in verse eight? What's going to happen to God's enemies? Destruction. Yeah, it says with an overflowing flood, he'll make a complete end of the adversaries. And so God's going to destroy his enemies completely. Um, Is this how we present God to people? Nahum seems to have a pretty balanced view. God is loving and just, but God is also what? What does verse two say? Read your Bible. What does Nahum one and verse two say? He is what kind of God? Jealous, there's more. And wrathful. Is God still like that? Or would you say the New Testament has sort of changed things? I'm seeing Stacy. He's still like that. Yes. He still hates sin. Yeah. So it's not the case that God was really angry in the Old Testament, went to counseling between the Testaments. And now under the new, there's a lot of grace and mercy. That's not true. In fact, though, to the surprise of many people, the New Testament actually says it's worse now. Hebrews 10, 26 through 29 says, if those under the old covenant died without recompense under the testimony of two or three, how shall we escape? Hebrews 2. And if we sin willfully after receiving knowledge of the truth, no longer is there a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful looking of indignation that will devour the adversaries. And so under the New Testament, God's this way, too. And so we need to present God as he's presented in the Bible, a God of patience, a God of mercy, but also a God of wrath and a God of vengeance. And that's who Nahum describes him as vengeance toward the wicked, but patience and goodness toward those that are on his side. All right. Quickly, let's try to move through the second section, which is about the oracle against Nineveh. Chapter one and verse nine says that they will be completely destroyed. And so they have bullied and persecuted his people. But God says, notice, why do you plot against the Lord? He'll make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. I think this is kind of a play on words. You go you go back to Jonah. You remember when Jonah got spit up by the fish? The Bible says in Jonah three and verse one, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Nineveh had a second chance. They blew that second chance. And God says, when I get through with you, we won't have to do it again. When God destroys, it'll be complete destruction. There won't be there won't be a round two. Then there's words of hope for Judah. Excuse me. In verses 12 through 13. This is not about Nineveh. It's about God's people. And this goes to I forget who made the comment about not being afraid of them, though they are full of full strength and many. They will cut down and pass away, though I've afflicted you. I will do it no more. I will break his yoke from off of you and burst his bonds apart. So God says, I'm going to destroy these people that are bothering you. Can you think of any other nations in the Bible 
that were oppressing God's people, giving them difficulty, Old or New Testament, that God has done this with, where he says, OK, you're under the yoke of them. You're suffering, but I'm going to show up and rescue you any any time in the Bible you can think of. Egypt, that's the first one. OK, Egypt, the book of Exodus. Moses called it the fiery furnace in Deuteronomy chapter four. They were delivered from Egypt. Any other people that oppress God's people and God says, I'm going to show up and they won't be bullying you anymore. I'm going to rescue you. Babylon. OK, yeah, Babylon for sure. I heard somebody else, something else. The Philistines, yeah, you could just circle the whole book of Judges, right? Moab, the Philistines, various groups that cause God's people trouble. There's words of hope for Judah. God's going to show up and defend them. Assyria would be cut off. That's in verse 14. This verse might be dealing specifically with the king. It's talking about his posterity being cut off, his gods being removed. And God says, I will make your grave for you are vile. And so God's going to destroy him. And then in verse 15, there is good news coming for God's people. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. And so this is a theme in the Bible. When the wicked are punished, Proverbs 11 and verse 10, the righteous should do what? Everybody starts with re, ends with joyce. We should do what? Rejoice. That's the biblical response. Not just for yourself, though. It's not just about you. Well, okay, I was being persecuted and now I'm delivered. It's anytime the wicked are put down, the righteous are supposed to rejoice because it shows the vindication of who God is. And it also reminds us of what's ultimately coming at the end of the world. The wicked will be put down and the righteous will always rejoice. We're seeing some of that in Revelation where there's this praise. Everybody believes in this principle. People that say they don't believe in God, they believe in this principle. Every movie has these two ideas running through it. There's a good guy and a what guy? And every normal person is rooting for which guy? I know some of you like to play devil's advocate. Well, I'm for the bad guy. So every normal person is going for what guy? And when it happens at the end, what do we typically do? We're glad. We're excited. We rejoice. We're wired that way. They can't tell a movie, write a story without it. It's embedded in the human conscience. We know there are two forces that work in the world, good and evil. And your heart is inclined toward rooting for the good guy, even when you don't know the good guy. Good news is coming. Nahum 115. He says good news is going to be published on the mountain and Israel will rejoice when Assyria is thrown down. All right. The doom of Nineveh. That's the rest of the book. Chapter two, verse one through chapter three and verse 19. Um, We don't have time to go through all of these, but let me just say this before Nahum talks about the wickedness of these people. He taunts them. You know of any other prophet that taunted the enemy that said basically that mocked them and made fun of them. Can you think of any other prophet that did that? Elijah. What did Elijah do? Yeah. Where is your. Did he go to the did he take a bathroom break? Right. Yeah. That's the kind of stuff Elijah saying in first Kings 18. He's saying, where's Baal? He's mocking them because he's saying he won't show up, but my God will deliver. Nahum does the same thing. His message to the people of Assyria is what? What's his primary message? Doom and punishment. But he mocks them throughout and says things like, hey, you might want to get your army together. Get your shields, get your war weapons. It's not going to make a difference. But he's just mocking them to say this is what's going to happen. In verse three, he says the shield of the mighty is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal. On the day he musters them, the cypress spears are brandished. And so he's saying their chariots race madly through the streets. They they rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. But none of it's going to make a difference because Assyria is going to be destroyed. 
it happened for them in about 612 B.C. As we mentioned, the Babylonians and others came and utterly destroyed them. They were a bloody city. And so blood was going to run through their streets. That's chapter three, verse one. And if you look at chapter three, notice what's going on in these first five verses. The whip of punishment would crack on them. That's verse two. There would be dead bodies without end. That's verse three. So many dead bodies. They'd be tripping and stumbling over the dead bodies. In verse four, this would be their repayment for all of their wickedness. And God was against them for their sins in verses five through seven. And he would embarrass them. Imagine so many dead bodies in the streets. You're running for safety and you're tripping over the dead bodies. That's how bad it's going to be for them. But don't feel sorry for them. It's exactly what they deserve for their sins that they committed before. There's a history lesson in chapter three, verse eight through 13. And it is this. They destroyed a nation. Look at chapter three and verse eight. The Thebes a city in ancient Egypt, they destroyed them about. Oh, maybe 30 years before Nahum writes this prophecy. Thebes was a prosperous and successful nation. Nobody thought would ever fall. The Assyrians defeated them. And God said, hey, just like you did the Thebes, I'm going to do to you. Just like nobody thought they would ever fall. You're going to fall, too. And then, of course, the book ends with more judgment. But then look at chapter three and verse 19. He says, there is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you for upon whom has not your unceasing upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. So in the end, God gathers all the nations and he says, how about a round of applause for the destruction of Assyria? Everybody's happy that they're off the scene because every nation you could think of at this time had been bullied, ransacked, or run over by these people, predominantly his people, the northern kingdom of Israel, and even them poking somewhat at the southern kingdom of Judah. And God says, this is the doom of Nineveh. Okay, here are the major themes that run throughout the book. Number one, God's wrath. God is a God that gets angry. Psalm 9 and verse 17 says he feels indignation every day at the wicked. It takes God a long time to get there, but eventually he does. How does God describe himself? Exodus 20 and verse five. I'm a what God blank. What's the blank? A jealous God. What does that mean? A jealous God. Don't have other other gods. Yes. But what does that characteristic mean for us? It's a bad thing to be jealous. What does it mean when God is jealous? Number one. Another way to translate it is zealous. God is zealous for his namesake and he won't go part time with any other God. The book of Nahum says God is a God of wrath. God also is good. Nahum 1 and verse 7. This may be the most well-known verse in the book. And we do need to remember the just the goodness of God. Some would read of the punishment in this book and think about the badness of God. But this just goes to show they don't know the God of the Bible. Takes God a long time to get upset. But God is good. And as Dennis mentioned, he would rather forgive people and pardon them than destroy. And so every time you read about God punishing someone or something, just remember it took God a long time to get there. And he would rather not do it. But if you force his hand, that's what he'll have to do because of his justice and who he is. Number three, read these passages. Well, I'll start this verse. You know this verse. This is Romans 8, 31 and 32. If God be for us, what's the rest? That's a great verse, a great passage. Now, the reverse is also true. If God be against us, it doesn't matter who's for you. Twice in the book of Nahum, chapter two and verse 13 and chapter three and verse five, you read these words. God says, I am against you. You never want those words to be said about you. But it's not just true about a pagan nation. The same phrase is found in Ezekiel five and verse eight. God says, I am against you. There are some things and some people and some behavior that God is against. God loves everybody, but he doesn't support everything. 
And when people do things that are wrong, it's not just the case. Well, God doesn't like that. God says, I'm against you. We're in opposition. God's opposed to it. And that's what's said about these folks. And so while we love Romans 8, 31 and 32, if God's for us, nope, nobody can stop us, no matter who's against us. If God's against you, you can mount the whole world on your side and there's nothing anybody can do to help you. And that's what Assyria had to learn. Here's the next one. Vengeance belongs to God. Nahum 1 and verse 3. Chuck mentioned God's justice. God won't acquit the guilty. And Deuteronomy 32, 35 says vengeance is mine. I will repay. They had a chance in Jonah's day. No chance in Nahum. You don't read anything about repentance. If you turn, if you change, it's just doom and gloom for them because of the choices that they made. And the last one is God rules in the kingdoms of men. God always takes account. It's not just true that God observes the kingdoms of men. Maybe we think like that. Well, God knows what's going on in the world. That's true. But the Bible saying something stronger than that. The Bible saying God rules in the kingdoms of men, which means he's actually involved in ruling right now. Nobody else rules but God. Everybody else is babysitting kingdoms. God's temporarily put them in charge of everybody. The Republicans don't rule. The Democrats don't rule. The Russians don't rule. God rules every kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he wills. Daniel 425. This was supposed to drastically shift Israel's worldview. If you really believe the savior of all the world rules, not just as watching out, but is actually involved. And by the way, he's on your side. No matter what happens, no matter what they put on the news, no matter what people do, however dark and wicked it gets, God rules. And the only thing we should be concerned about is whether we're on God's side or not and whether we've submitted to his will. All right. In 30 seconds. New Testament usage. This could be easy. There is no direct quotation from the old New Testament of this book, but there are some possible allusions. Nahum 1:15 is probably alluded to in Romans 10:15 about the good news coming with the gospel of peace. But Isaiah 52 and verse 7 also uses that verse, so that's a possibility. Nahum 1, 2 through 7 about the severity and the goodness of God. You see that going on throughout the book of Nahum. Nahum 1 and verse 2, the wrath of God. Paul talks about the wrath of God poured out on all nations or the Gentiles for their wickedness in Romans 1, 18 through 32. And then, of course, Nahum 1 and verse 7, the Lord knows those who trust in him. 2 Timothy 2, 19, Paul says, God knows those that are his. All right, here's the last thing we need to see, and that is, don't worry, there won't be a test on this. Some of y'all are like, I was taking notes on that. Okay, Jesus and Nahum, here's the last thing. What does this teach us about Jesus? Jesus never quotes this book, but here's what we know. When you read the book of Nahum, you get a view of what God thinks about sin. And if your heart is honest, you read this book about these people and you say, you know, I've done some things I shouldn't have done. And what on earth is keeping this wrath from being poured out on me? There's one answer. It's not that God escaped us from the wrath, that it just passed over and God never did it. The wrath that belongs to us literally came down on Jesus. Second Corinthians 5:21 says God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And here's just the last thing. When Jesus came the first time, that was side A of the tape. God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. We love John 3:16, But there is a side B to the tape for everybody in the world. And we just should hope that we don't get caught on the other side of this thing when Jesus comes in judgment, that we might be found expecting salvation and not punishment. Nineveh had their opportunity. Side A was Jonah. Side B is Nahum. Right now is everybody in the world side A to the tape. And we get to determine what's going to happen on the other side, whether we'll see him in peace or see him in punishment. Thanks for a good Bible class tonight. Thanks for your interaction and questions and feedback.